0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thanks for being here this morning. And my name is Dan Halleck, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet. And and, uh, some of your parents are without teenagers this weekend, because there's a big youth retreat going on this weekend uh, through our church over in Kashmir. And so be praying for them as they, I think they're heading back tomorrow. Um, I was just looking out this morning at at all your faces. I was just thinking, man, I'm so thankful for this church and thankful for, For these people and just proud proud of you for being here and for coming here and and and, uh, thankful to be together Um, this morning I was reading the Bible and I read some really these very personal and heartfelt words written in a letter and the, the the sentence was this it says you are my glory and my joy you are my glory and my joy do you know who, who that was written by and to? Well, I'm not gonna all have you guess, but think about that. I mean, you don't just throw those words out. You're my glory and you're my joy. That was written by the Apostle Paul to a local church, to the church of Thessalonica. And as you read through books like Philippians and all these letters that Paul wrote to the churches, Galatians, and, you see that Paul really loved the local church. He had a sincere and deep and personal love for these local Christian churches. And the reason why this is astonishing partly is because anybody who had met Paul in his later years and seen this love and concern he had for the local church would have been shocked if they'd known him as a younger man when Paul hated Christians, hated them, and he actually, devoted himself to destroy local churches, That was part of his testimony. That was who I was. I I used to hate the local church. I used to destroy. In fact, fact, Paul was one of the leaders of the first major persecution against Christians, right? Uh, It happened in the city of Jerusalem around the year 33 AD. And Paul was one of those Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who he was tired of Christians he was tired of them preaching talking about Jesus talking about the gospel they were doing miracles in his in Jesus's name and he was sick of it and so Paul and his fellow leaders in Jerusalem they began to arrest and kill all these Christians in acts and this is if you re, as we read through acts we'll see in in his other letters this was a core part of Paul's personal testimony in acts 1 Paul says i ravaged the church in Jerusalem that's the word. I ravaged it. I mean, and, he, and then he says this, I would enter house after house searching for Christians. And then when I found some, whether they men or women, it doesn't matter, I would drag them off to prison where they would await their execution. And he was glad to do this. And in fact... Um, you know, after he scoured Jerusalem for all the Christians he could find, um, he made it his mission then, we know, to travel to the surrounding areas. He wanted to eradicate the empire of Christians. And so we know that when Paul was on his way to this town in, of Damascus, that's when this life-changing event happened in Paul's life. Jesus, who was supposed to be dead, appeared to Paul in a light Uh, from heaven and it was so bright that it blinded paul in an instant and it dropped him to his knees and uh, paul said who are you lord so he knew it was the lord he said who are you and and the voice said i am jesus whom you are persecuting and in an instant when he heard that paul learned three things real fast first jesus is alive second jesus is the lord and third Jesus' church, his followers, are precious to him. In fact, Jesus says that to persecute Jesus' followers is the same as persecuting Jesus. So stop persecuting Christians is Jesus' message to him. And that's exactly what Paul did. And not only that, I mean, Paul's, Paul was convinced, okay, yep, he's God. And he's, and he's worthy of our worship and praise. Paul quickly became uh, one of the most passionate followers of Jesus and he began to preach everywhere I w- that he was wrong right? right I was wrong about Jesus Jesus is alive Jesus is God he is worthy of our lives and of our worship and his new purpose in life from that point forward uh, was to glorify Jesus okay to point people to g- Jesus the living God and this is how we would do it by making more disciples of Jesus by planting churches throughout the Roman Empire, okay? So he no longer wanted to destroy churches. His vision was to see them multiply. Uh, I think we have a map here, a newer map, okay, small. Um, But uh, this kind of shows us another... Uh, version of it. Um, I want us to fast forward where Paul and his friend Barnabas are preaching the gospel in this town, Pisidian Antioch up in the top left. Okay. So this is part of Galatia again. And they were preaching to these massive crowds of Jews and Gentiles that, uh, that Jesus died to save all types of people. Right. And to the Jews, that was a very offensive message that, 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 uh, the lamb of God would die even to save non-Jews. And so they, uh, they didn't like it, and they chased Paul and Barnabas out of town. And they hiked um thirty or sorry, ninety miles then to the next major town, this Roman road called the Via Sebasti, uh, to Iconium. And in Iconium they preached the gospel there. It says a lot of people trusted in Jesus. But very quickly the authorities got angry with Paul and Barnabas. They tried to capture them so they could kill them. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas heard about it and they fled the city and they kept hiking to the next town on the route if you can see it just south of Iconium is Lystra down there and uh, Paul was led to heal a crippled man there and then all of a sudden remember this, this is when the city said it must be the gods among us so they thought Paul was was uh, Hermes and that Barnabas was Zeus and so they tried to worship them and they're like no, 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 no and eventually they got the people to listen to some of the gospel and some of those people became Christians, but what happened is, not long after that, all those angry Christians up in Antioch wanted to hunt Paul down and Barnabas, so they came to Iconium, and they got all the people there angry, and so all they joined this other massive crowd, and they came down to Lystra, and they got all of Lystra angry, so you had this huge massive crowd, and they all decided to kill Paul together. They found Paul, and uh, they pummeled him with stones, stoning was cap- the, one of the... Terrible forms of capital punishment. Um, and they pummeled him with stones until they were sure he was dead. And then when they were sure he was dead, they dragged his body outside of town. Put an end to Paul, right? Well, what happened is those new disciples in Lystra came out to see Paul's body and they found that Paul was still alive and miraculously alive. And, st- and so alive that he, he, he stood up and God gave him strength to go back into town where they had just tried to kill him, where he would be for the night. And it says that the next day, get this, okay? So just, it's hard to imagine, okay? Just physically, I mean, being beaten all over your body. He was miraculously preserved. The next day, he began a 58-mile hike, okay? To the next town of, uh, in Derby. 58 miles, but God was preserving Paul. I mean, he had a special plan for him. He was giving him strength. And let's read what happened according to Acts fourteen twenty-one, which is where we're picking up. It says that when they'd preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra into Iconium. And to Antioch. Get that? Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to Derby, okay? And they made many disciples in Derby. And then it says they returned to the cities whose residents had all just tried to kill them. They returned to Lystra. Paul and Barnabas returned to Iconium. And then Paul and Barnabas returned to Pisidian, Antioch. Good, thanks for putting that map up there, okay? They returned to the cities that wanted them dead. Now, why is the question? Right? Why, Paul and Barnabas? What are you What are you thinking? If you're done with the missionary journey, can't you take a different way home? To back to their home church over here, in Antioch in Syria, right? They could have. That's the interesting thing. Yes. Okay, there was a few other ways they could have done that. There was another path they could have taken to return to their sending church. You can kind of see it. There's a dotted line here from Derby. It goes back to Tarsus, which was Paul's hometown. He could have gone to Tarsus and known people and seen his family, and he could have rested there. That's halfway to Antioch, but he didn't go that route. Okay, let's just assume for whatever reason that was a bad option. It was maybe mountain passes or whatever. It wasn't doable. Well, was there a way for them to go back the long way to their home uh, sending church uh, through Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch without stopping, right? Yeah, they could have, they could have disguised themselves. They could have traveled by night. Uh, they could have hurried those, through those cities as quickly as possible without being seen, but they didn't do that. What it says they did is they came back to each one of those cities and they stayed there for a while. Why? This is why. Because the local churches were precious to Paul. God's people were precious to Paul. He wanted to plant churches that were healthy, that were following Jesus, and that would last. And so those new churches in Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, these were, Paul affectionately refers to them as his babies. These are my babies, right? And he took a massive risk by returning to those churches. See, to Paul and Barnabas, visiting those new churches was worth the risk of being killed in those cities. You really gotta love them to do that. And part of this goes with, with Paul in his correct understanding of the great commission that Jesus gave us, that we're not merely to make converts to Christianity and then just move along, right? To, to whoever. Okay, you, you said the prayer. Now I'm leaving you. Paul understood that Jesus's call to us, his command, is to make disciples of Jesus, and disciples of Jesus are people who have been born again through faith in the gospel, through faith in Jesus, and who are now learning to follow Jesus with their lives. Okay, learning how to obey Jesus. Jesus doesn't want people who only convert to Christianity because, well, I don't want to go to hell, okay, so I'll go, I guess I'll say I'm a Christian, right? It's not what he wants. God wants our hearts. Jesus wants followers who trust him, who love him and appreciate him and who want to imitate him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean you're perfect by any means. It means you're a sinner in need of grace, but you want to follow Jesus. And scripture Jesus tells us he wants his disciples to follow him together okay so what do we call communities of disciples that are seeking to follow Jesus together the way he told us to we call those churches more specifically we call them local churches it's a local church is a community of disciples intentionally following Jesus together in a specific locale or place and the local churches that Paul established in each of these cities were precious to him, not because they were his, but because they were God's. And these local churches were the groups of people who were devoting themselves together to sharing a common life, to worship God together, and to being uh, in fellowship together, and to serving, using their gifts together, and to um, multiplying and making more disciples together together. These were churches just like this church. Not this building, just like us, this people. And God loves this church too, okay? A local church is a community of disciples intentionally following Jesus together the way he told us to in scripture, in a location or place. And we want to bring glory to Jesus' name as we do that. That's why we want to do it. And so if we are disciples of Jesus, if we're reading scripture correctly, how should we feel about his local churches? Hopefully, we will wanna love God and his church in a way that God loves God and his church. Because think about this, if we don't love Jesus' disciples, if we don't love local churches, we're definitely not gonna be passionate about making more of them, right? If you don't love the local church, why would you wanna plant a church? If you don't love um, the way that Jesus loves disciples, why would you wanna make more disciples? Well, what we're gonna see in today's passage is, is, this isn't just a feeling that Paul and Barnabas had, it was they showed their love by taking a huge sacrificial risk, sacrificing everything they had. (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to love these new churches in, in Lystra and Iconia and Antioch and Pisidia. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, uh, we just thank you um, for your love for us as disciples and for your love as, for us as your people, um, as the church, as the big church, the church universal, but also as the local church, this gathering of people here, as we, as we want to do life together and, and grow as your disciples together, as we... Rest in the gospel and and worship you with our lives, God. And so, <clears throat> just God, we just know that we're, we wherever there's any group of people, there's going to be conflict and hurt, and, and people are hurt, and there's and there's just no perfect group of people anywhere, and that includes churches. But I do pray, God, that the church would be a place distinct from the world where we're putting our eyes on you and seeking to love one another and you. Uh, the, the way that you've instructed us to. And so as we read your word today, we just ask Holy Spirit that you would fill our hearts with a great love for you and for, for your people whom you died, your, your bride who you died to save. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Acts 14, 21 to 28 here is where we're gonna pick up. And um, Paul and Barnabas just arrived in Derby Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay so we see here that Paul and Barnabas were committed to making disciples in the context of local churches. And let's dig into this passage now to see how how they did that, okay? It shows us in this passage seven components of making disciples in local churches. It's not an exhaustive list, okay? But we're looking specifically at Acts 14 this chapter to see seven components of making disciples in local churches. The first component of making disciples in local churches is preaching the gospel. That might be a surprise to you if you're new here, um, but uh, it might not be a surprise to you if you're not new here. The first thing Paul and Barnabas did here, as we've read through Acts, to make disciples and to make churches in these Galatian cities was tell them about what Jesus had done, the good news. Tell them the gospel. Because if people are to trust Jesus, if, if, if people are then going to follow Jesus, they have to first hear about him, right? And so when Paul and Barnabas entered Iconium, Acts 14.1 says that they spoke the gospel there. When they went to Lystra, they spoke the gospel there. Acts 14.21 says that when they came to Derbe, they preached the gospel, Acts 14, 6-7 says that in all the cities they visited in Lycaonia and the surrounding country, they preached the gospel. And then even on their way home, when they came to the city of Perga on the coast, Acts 14, 25 says they spoke the word there. So the preaching of the gospel to non-Christians and to Christians has been in the central part of local churches for 2,000 years. Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel to all the world. And so every Sunday, we as disciples gather to hear the gospel preached from God's word. Now, many churches today are changing both the form of preaching and the content of preaching. You now, Preaching is an out, out-of-date form of communication, some will say. It, it no longer works. People can't sit and listen to preaching for an hour or half an hour or 15 minutes, right? This is what the psychologists and and, uh, uh, scholars will say you can't just tell the gospel you have to be able to communicate your message in less than seven minutes public speaking classes that's what you learn if you can't do it forget about it and you can't just tell the people the gospel you can't just tell them that it won't seek in that way you have to include people are now movie clips you have to have object lessons that are going to blow people away You've got to interact with people real time through the apps on their phone during church. And by the way, regarding the content of the preaching, will you lighten up on hell and sin? Because that's just going to drive people away. We don't want to drive people away. We want more tithers, we want more people. Keep them here. And besides, it's just depressing to talk about that stuff, okay? People are coming here, they've had a hard week. You need to make them laugh. You got to lighten it up a little. And instead of talking with them from a pulpit, this is what you need to do. You need to sit down and dialogue with them. Maybe they have something to share too. Don't call it preaching. Call it a conversation. Okay, I'm being a little facetious here, okay? But I'm, I'm telling you, this is, what, this, is, this is the world I live in though. I, I study communication. I, 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 this is... I care about being a good communicator, okay? And so I do care about these things. And most of you know that I'm happy to use media in a sermon if it will help us better understand the Bible. And, and I do believe conversations about spiritual things, of course they're extremely important. And of course, hopefully we will be having those conversations outside of this one hour on Sunday morning, right? This is the truth though, okay? What we need most right now In this hour, as you listen to God's word being preached to you, you need the Holy Spirit to work in your heart with power. That's what you need. You don't need anything. If there's one chair and me and you on a pavement floor, if the Holy Spirit's not there, nothing's gonna happen. And if He's there, nothing's off limits. He could do anything. And that's, that's what we need, you guys. And that's what our prayers should be. That's why we pray before we open the word. Not because it's a ritual, but because, God, I need you to help me. Because I can read the Bible and not get anything out of it. I need you to help me, Jesus. And I want to learn how to be like you. We need the spirit of Jesus to work among us. And this is another thing I would say. God has not ordained preaching as a time for us to debate who god is and how we think we can know him god has ordained preaching to tell us who he is and how we can know him there's a big difference okay he wants us to hear the gospel he wants us to to hear about his great love for us we don't need to come up with new ideas he wants us he wants to sit down and say here hear God tell you I love you (laughs) I came to rescue you from you that's why I went I went to the cross to suffer the punishment that you're that you would suffer if I didn't come (laughs) because I don't want you to go to hell I love you so I died for you and I rose again and I'm the living God and I'm with you and I'm for you and you're going to find your greatest joy in your life by knowing me because I love you more than anybody else. So turn away from whatever else you're trusting in and trust in me. That, you know, he wants us to know that. He wants us to know that. And obviously, but there's different ways that's presented. Obviously, he's holy and worthy of our worship too, Right? He's big, he's the God of Pleiades and Orion, and at the same time, he's imminent, he's with us. He bends down to hear our prayers and he cares about us. And in preaching, he wants us to tell people that that's the way you can have eternal peace, is by knowing Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel we've been given as the church, as God's people, and it is our job to protect it, to protect protect this good news that uh, to, to, the, to as Peter says repent and be baptized celebrate through baptism what God has done to save you and obviously this is I'm just I want to be very clear here obviously we want practical teaching we offer Sunday schools and community groups and and all of that but and we want all of our teaching to be centered around the gospel But I'm convinced, having studied the scriptures on this and reading a lot of godly people on this, there will always be an important place for the centrality of preaching in the local church. That's the model Paul gave us. And that's the model that God gave us in Acts. Okay. So do you understand that? When we're talking about making disciples, preaching is part of, of that. There's not coming to church and listening to the sermon, and the discipleship is just something that happens in a one-on-one context. This is part of becoming a disciple, right? It's part of it. Okay. Now, the second component of making disciples in local churches is strengthening disciples' souls. Strengthening disciples' souls. Acts 14:22 says that when Paul and Barnabas visited each of those churches in Galatia, they strengthened the souls. Of the disciples okay so what does that mean well they came to make these disciples and churches stronger they came to build these people together and to build them up into strong local churches Uh, all throughout the letters in the New Testament Paul commands believers build up one another just do a little word study on that phrase build up one another it's a command build each other up in the church make each other stronger now, the opposite of this, of course, is, is to weaken Christians. Uh, it would be to weaken local churches, to, to divide them and tear them down. And that's, of course, what Satan tries to accomplish through us all the time, right? He wants to tear down Christians. He wants to tear apart the church. And he wants to use Christians to do that. Um, Through hurtful words, through selfishness, through power grabs, through temptations, Satan wants Christians to tear each other down and to tear apart the church. And what we see throughout 2,000 years of church history, and through, in addition to scripture, that our world around us can't tear us down as a church if we are building each other up. You hear that? The world cannot tear us down. The worst the secular powers have done in 2,000 years is torture disciples, imprison disciples, and kill disciples. And history has shown that even when that happens, God builds up his church and multiplies it even more. All of those terrible things happened just in the first century, and that is when the church flourished most. It grew exponentially like no other time in human history. So the church won't be torn apart by the non-believing world, but churches can be torn apart by people within the church. And so, as disciples of Jesus, we wanna work hard at building each other up. We wanna, if we're a body, we wanna build our, we wanna work together as parts according to the uh, instructions that Jesus has given to us in scripture. Build up the church, okay? The, The third component of making disciples in local churches is persevering in the faith and protecting it. Protecting the faith. Persevering in the faith and protecting the faith. Acts 14.22 says that when Paul and Barnabas visited each of those churches in Galatia, they encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith. Okay, so part of this encouragement was simply keep keep trusting Jesus. Keep trusting the message we gave you. Keep turning away from your old ways and keep turning to Jesus for help. And don't give up when it's hard because it's going to get hard. Keep running the race. Keep fighting the good fight for the glory of God. This is the language Paul uses. And in addition to encouraging the disciples to do this, to keep trusting in Jesus, Paul and Barnabas encouraged the church to fiercely protect the faith, to protect the gospel that was entrusted to them. It's what a lot of the letters in the New Testament are about, especially this letter to Galatians, which is written specifically to these three churches. Paul says, don't abandon the message. Don't abandon Jesus. Don't change Jesus. Don't change the gospel. Don't abandon Jesus for other gods and don't worship other gods in addition to Jesus. Don't tell people or listen to anybody who says that that faith in Jesus is not enough to save them. Don't believe outsiders who are going to come in who tell you that you have to follow a bunch of man-made rules in order to be saved plus faith in Jesus? Paul says, God offers you salvation as a gift, grace. That's the word grace. It's a gift from God. It's not something you work for. It's something you trust in. He worked, Jesus worked on our behalf. He did work but he worked on our behalf in his life, which was perfect, in his death, which was substitutionary in our place, and in his resurrection, which was victorious. He did the work. We're saved by grace alone, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's what Paul says. And so the reason that you, he tells the church and he tells us, because we're part of the church, the reason why you do good works as you follow Jesus is because you love him, because you want to worship him, Not because, not because you want to, I got to keep this salvation thing going for me. I got to make sure I don't fall out of the fingers of God. No. No, do good works because you love Jesus and because hopefully, man, the Holy Spirit's giving you a heart that finds joy in that, right? Follow Jesus for Jesus' glory and for your own joy. So in this way, Paul and Barnabas was encouraging lo- these local churches to continue in the faith through perseverance to keep, keep going and also to protect that message that he'd given to them. The fourth component of making disciples in the local church is embracing suffering as part of following Jesus. Embracing suffering as part of following Jesus. In Acts 14:22, Paul and Barnabas told those new Christians, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God so this doesn't mean that the way that we enter the kingdom of God is through tribulations okay if I go through tribulations they don't go to heaven that's not what he's saying we enter the kingdom of God through Jesus he's the gate what it means though is that we will go through many hardships on our journey toward Jesus who's awaiting us in the kingdom Luke 9 23 to 25 says um, and he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So suffering for righteousness, suffering for Jesus, suffering in order to help take the gospel to all nations is a central part of following Jesus. And much of Paul's writings to his protege, Timothy, were about enduring suffering as a disciple of Jesus. Timothy himself, he was a young man, and get this, Timothy lived in Lystra. He was from Lystra, where Paul had had been stoned. And so Timothy had seen the kind of suffering that Paul had endured for the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12, Paul says, he writes this to young Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's a good manly analogy, guys. Okay? Share in suffering as a good soldier. You want to be a good soldier? Share in suffering for Jesus. And... And for sure, one of the great joys in the gospel that we're given in the New Testament is that we, we can have joy in the midst of suffering for Jesus too. So as terrible as persecution and hardships can be, what a joyful privilege it is to suffer for Jesus because we love him. What a privilege it is to, to be so identified with Christ that people hate us because they hate Christ. What a joy it is to endure suffering because we love his church and because we, we want to glorify him even in the suffering. Um, so do not listen to anyone. This was what Paul would say then and what, he, what God is, tells us now in scripture. Don't listen to anybody, Christian or non-Christian, who tells you that God's plan is for you is to give you your best life right now enjoy life right we read it out in scripture there is a way to eat drink and be merry for the glory of God that is not the same as eat drinking and merry, be merry in a sinful way to enjoy life's little gifts and enjoy every gift that comes to us from God the Father and at the same time um, you will have suffering in this life and this is, I, the Piper's way, John Piper's way of explaining this is most helpful for me. We're not in peacetime right now. We're in wartime. This is wartime. And so what do we do in wartime? Well, you look at the, how they lived in World War I and World War II. You make great sacrifices to win the war. <laughs> it's not the time to buy everything you want. It's the time to invest your money in the kingdom to win the battles for God, to, to get the gospel out to people who, who haven't heard and who are going to hell, to build up the church. It's wartime. That's why we invest our money. Not just because, oh, I love you, Lord, I want to worship you through this. But, man, people need to hear. The church needs to be built up. We have to push back the darkness. If this, this room of people doesn't do it, who's going to do it? Other churches, well, hopefully, right? But man, I want to be a good soldier. I want, to, I want to join in suffering for the Lord. And I know that you do too. And so um, Jesus promises that as we suffer and even as we make great sacrifices for his kingdom, this is what he says. I'm going to be with you to help you endure your tribulations. And in Romans 8, he says this. Your present sufferings, whatever they are, I mean as terrible as they are, can be on earth. They are not worth comparing with the future glory that's gonna be revealed to you. That's hard to, that's hard, very hard to even comprehend when your face is right here next to your suffering and trials, right? <laughs> He's saying this is not worth comparing with the glory that's gonna be revealed to you very soon when you meet Jesus face to face. That should give us perspective on how we live our lives here on earth and how we view eternity. So as Christians, and we wanna bear one another's burdens in suffering, right? That's part of the reason God's given us each other as a grace to help one another, to, to lift each other up through the various sufferings that we, we must endure as we walk this path to Jesus. Okay, um, the fifth component of making disciples in local churches is appointing elders to shepherd the church. So the passage says that in Lystra and in Iconium and in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. And we know that at this point, they'd already been appointed in Jerusalem also. Because James was essentially the lead pastor of that flock in Jerusalem, Jesus' brother. And it says that with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel in these cities, they'd established these young churches, but but what couldn't they do? They couldn't stay there. We can't stay with you. You're our babies, but we can't stay with you. And so each church needed its own shepherds to care for them. And so this word elder, it means pastor, pastor, elder, same thing. And pastor means shepherd, by the way. And so... These new believers, where were they living? Think about this. They were living in cities whose citizens had already tried to kill them. And so their churches need, needed some mature elders to help these people, because Paul and Barnabas were leaving. They needed them to support these new believers in the face of persecution. Um, they needed elders to, to, to do what Paul and Barnabas were doing, to build up the flock, to encourage them. To, Guys, we've got to keep the faith. And to teach them the, the gospel and the scriptures and to protect them from out, outside dangerous teaching and to correct them when they, uh, when they went into their old ways of sin and said, oh yeah, that's right. That's what I did when I was worshiping false idols. I can't do that anymore. I'm following Jesus. And so a church's elders, according to scripture, would teach the gospel um, and, and to these churches. And keep in mind, these churches, it wasn't like uh OK, they're taking over the, the, the Jewish synagogue. These churches were this was a radical group of people. These were Jews and Gentiles who never lived bef- together before. They didn't sit together, but all of a sudden, they're in the same church. And guess what? There's not the rich Romans and the slaves anymore. In the church, they're at the same level. It's incredible. You can imagine how this rubbed people's flesh the wrong way. They needed leadership. They needed, they needed the elders uh, to say, you guys, we're not showing favoritism here. <laughs> At the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. And in Jesus' eyes, we're all the righteousness of Christ. And so we're gonna live into that. We want our actions to show that. And the needs of the church have not changed in 2,000 years. Local churches, man, <laughs> they need elders, pastors, who love people just like Paul loved these young churches. That's what churches need. You don't need anybody who wants to be a pastor <laughs> so, that they, so that they can have a position, okay? I will gladly give that up. I'm not looking for position. You don't need elders who want that. You, the elders are, should be the chief servants of the church. And so according to scripture, the elders will hopefully be filled with the spirit and devoted to God's word and abounding in love and committed to the way I divide is four key things according to scripture that I learned from this book by Tim Whitmer. Knowing the flock, knowing who you are and loving you and knowing how we can care for you and teaching the flock, preserving the teaching of Christ and teaching it. And um, protecting the flock, right? Protecting the flock and, uh, um, from, from, from dangerous teaching and then leading the flock and guiding the church. This is the vision that God has for this body right now we're sensing as elders, right? And so it's for this reason that, that we have elders, for, for the strengthening and the guidance and the instruction and training and correction and protection and love of local churches. And that's why Paul and Barnabas appointed them. And it says in every local church appoint elders. And there are some nuances here in the original Greek I'm not gonna get into, but it it basically, it indicates that probably each local church would vote for their own elders, but they would need to fit the criteria given in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, and Titus 1. And when the church voted for their shepherds, uh, the church fasted and prayed it says to then commit those elders to the Lord and this model is the same model that we follow at Cedar Home this is why we have an elder led congregational church okay? um, and I hope you know we love you <laughs> the sixth component of making disciples in local churches is supporting new gospel centered mission work Okay, so Acts 14.26, it says that after Paul and Barnabas established these new churches uh, with these elders in place now, now they kind of handed the baton off. They returned to their home church in Syrian Antioch over there on the east coast. And this was the church that sent them. Um, This is the church that prayed for them. And the example that the church in Antioch gives for us is that we should prayerfully support gospel-centered missions work as we're able to, in addition to our church, okay? So, so think about how Antioch did this. Well, they sent their two leaders, Paul and Barnabas, to Cyprus and then to Galatia. And, and in a similar way, we at Cedar Home uh, support missionaries and we support teams that are going through the world, uh, to the world, to spread the good news of Jesus. We're going to talk about some of that next week and celebrate that. Um, and also, just like the church in Antioch, what did they do when they heard that their brothers in Jerusalem, there was a terrible famine coming and they were poor and they were gonna need help? They sent money to them. We said, help the brothers. And so in a similar way, uh, we send, we've done a number of projects to help our brothers in Swaziland and in various parts of the world to financially support them as we share the gospel with them. You See, those go together. Not that we don't help non-Christians, no, but we do have a priority as Christians to help other Christians. Um, And so this means that we as a local church want to support new gospel-centered mission work as we're able to and as God leads. And then the seventh component of making disciples in local churches that we see in this passage is celebrating what God has done among us. Acts 14, 27 to 28 says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. It's really easy, you know, to look at Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 and say, man, those guys are heroes, what they did. Well, certainly they sacrificed much. They, obviously, they took enormous risks. They had great faith. Uh, they did much for the glory of God. But when you look at verse 27, do you notice who the doer of the action is? God. They declared all that God had done with them. They declared how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Is that cool? So yes, God graciously allows us to participate in his mission to, to, to preach the gospel, but this is what we have to always remember in our lives and in our, in our church, that God is the true author of the faith. He's the true catalyzer of the church. He's the finisher of his mission. And this is why Paul says in Philippians uh, that the reason we want to serve the Lord, if, we, if you have a desire to serve the Lord, the reason you have that desire, and the reason you're able to serve the Lord, if you are physically able, mentally able to serve the Lord, it's because God is at work in you. That's why. This means that every good thing in our life comes from the gracious hand of God. And everything God-glorifying that happens in us, through us, through our church, it's all from Him. That's where it's from. And He's the doer of of the, uh, the action, and so, what we see here is, man, it is good and right to gather the local church and to declare all that God has done among us. And I think God sovereignly gave us this passage today to transition us to what we're going to be doing next week. That's what we want to do here at Cedar Home next Sunday. We want to declare some of the ways that God has worked in and through our church family this past year. As a, as a lead pastor, I often get a front row seat to hear about some of these cool stories and answer prayers that a lot of you don't know about. And so next week, we just want to take a snapshot, show you some of the snapshots of testimonies of how God's working in our community of people here and in our ministries. And I hope you'll be here to celebrate with us. So just a review, okay? Today's passage shows us seven components of making disciples in local churches. The ones we see here are preaching the gospel, strengthening disciples' souls, persevering in the faith and protecting it, Embracing suffering as part of following Jesus. Appointing elders to shepherd the church. Supporting new gospel-centered mission work. And celebrating what God has done among us. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit to, to help us do this, right? To help us love God. To help us love the church the way that Jesus loves the Father and the way that Jesus loves his church. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for these people, God. Uh, The church here that you have given us at cedar home and um we don't have it all figured out by any means god we uh we know we love you and we want to grow as your disciples and we know that you said that uh we're sanctified by your word by the truth of your word and so we want to commit ourselves to the truth of your word and to understand that and to apply that in our lives both individually and and uh and as a church and so I just pray, God, for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord. You know what's heavy on their hearts, and I pray that um, you would use your word and your presence and uh, the other members of this body to be an encouragement to them. Let us be an encouragement to one another, God, uh, as we close with an ending song and, and prepare to leave this place. You're so good to us. Thank you, God, for calling us into your family, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.